This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. In Disney's new animated adventure, Strange World, a family gets lost in a mysterious land underground. It's a story about discovery and intergenerational conflict with a cast that includes Jake Gyllenhaal, Gabrielle Union, Jabuki Young-White, and Dennis Quaid. I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about the movie Strange World on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Joining me today is Ronald Young Jr. He's the host of the film and television review podcast, Leaving the Theater. Welcome back, Ronald. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you. So at the opening of Strange World, we are told about the Clade family and its patriarch, a legendary explorer named Jaeger Clade. He's voiced by Dennis Quaid. His son, Searcher, voiced by Jake Gyllenhaal, was supposed to carry on in Jaeger's tradition, but Searcher is more interested in farming. Both professions turn out to be important to their isolated homeland of Avalonia. Jaeger is always looking for a world beyond the mountains that surround Avalonia, while Searcher uses farming as a way to modernize his community thanks to a mysterious plant-based power source. Soon the whole Clade family gets swept up in a quest when the aforementioned plant-based power source is threatened. Searcher is joined by his wife Meridian, a bold pilot voiced by Gabrielle Union, and their son Ethan, a queer teenager voiced by Jabuki Young-White. Ethan finds himself torn between farming and exploring when he's not fretting over his first big crush. The family is also joined by Avalonia's president, Callisto Ma, voiced by Lucy Liu. Much of Strange World takes place in, well, a strange world full of weird organisms, some friendly and some not so much. Most of them don't have names, though Ethan does befriend a weird blue blob he calls Splat. Strange World was directed by Don Hall and Kui Gwen. They worked together on Raya and the Last Dragon. Strange World is in theaters now. Ronald, what did you think of Strange World? I didn't like it. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> this has been Pop Culture Happy Hour. <laughs> no. We want to know what you think. <laughs> right. No, it wasn't my favorite. You know, when I saw the previews, it felt forgettable watching the previews. Mm-hmm. And when I walked in the movie, you know, I thought maybe I'll be surprised. You know, there's been a couple of Disney sleeper hits, stuff that I just did not expect to be good that just knocked me over. Hello, Encanto. And I feel mm-hmm. like Disney's churning out animated films so quickly that it feels a lot easier to have more misses now than they did earlier. You know, mm-hmm. just think about it. This is Disney Animation Studios versus Pixar, say. And back in the day, we were getting Pixar movies once a year, and it felt like you knew it was going to be good. They had right. rarely any misses, if any. I think people didn't like A Bug's Life. I liked A Bug's Life. I love uh, A Bug's Life. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we're the wrong audience. <laughs> but, but this is one of those movies where it felt like a big swing and a very big miss. I'll stop right there. What do you think, Stephen? 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of came down a little bit in the middle on this film. I feel like I have a history of misjudging when something is major Disney versus minor Disney. Yes. And I never want to, like, 100% put my chips on this is minor Disney. But this felt like minor Disney. And at the same time, it's a gorgeous film to look at. There clearly was an enormous amount of work put into character design and making this thing look as vibrant and colorful and different as it does. But at the same time, I felt like the plot was really cobbled together from a lot of spare parts. You know, we've seen a lot of these family dynamics, you know, kind of intergenerational family dynamics play out over and over and over again. I didn't necessarily feel like the script was super sharp. I think that in terms of looks and as just like an experience, I enjoyed it fine, but I felt myself forgetting it as it was happening. Now, and we're going to need to talk about how this thing performed at the box office because it was a disaster. (laughs) Okay, so just briefly about the plot, I think that's where I fell on I didn't like it because Mm -hmm. there's the journey that I'm on visually, I really did enjoy that. There were parts where I thought, wow, this is going to be good. I kind of like where this is going. I like what I'm looking at. I like the world, this strange world that they're introducing me to. I'm really enjoying that. And the way they're playing it a little tongue-in-cheek, like they're in on it with us. Mm -hmm. But I got so weary of the my father wants me to do what he wants me to do, but not what he wants, but I'm not aware enough to realize that I'm doing the same thing to my child. Like that felt so contrived and it felt Mm -hmm. so, like you said, minor Disney. And it also felt cheap. It felt cheap in a way to say that here's a movie that maybe doesn't have that much of an emotional center, honestly, which is unfortunate because the elements are there for it to have an emotional center, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have much of one. So it tries to force one in there by making men talk about their relationships with their father, which (laughs) for me, I'm like, yes, that is a place that is rife with plenty of emotional, you know, like there's a place for us to really mine from that, but it just doesn't feel like they actually did it here. And I think for me, that's why it kind of flopped in my heart but I'm interested to see how it flopped at the box office as well yeah I mean boy I mean if you haven't seen the box office numbers I mean this is a 180 million dollar movie that made like a buck and a half and it's (laughs) it's rough and I mean honestly with how they marketed it I was a little surprised they didn't just take it straight to Disney Plus Disney and Disney Pixar have taken significantly better movies I mean Turning Red yes debuted on Disney Plus and is a really great Pixar movie. Yes. I think a lot of the studios are still kind of feeling their way in terms of what is going to play in theaters versus what people are going to be excited about in home viewing. And this certainly has the possibility of kind of finding an audience in home viewing, right? I know that formula is wrong, whatever they're calculating, because I have felt like several times I've been sitting in a theater and I've thought, I need to be at home. And I've been sitting at home and saying, I should be in a theater. For instance, with Dune, I was sitting at home watching that and I was like, I should be in a theater. They should have held on to this one, you know, like done what Tom Cruise did or just said, let's just hold this one a little longer because people need to be in a theater watching this. Whereas I went to the theater to saw Ticket to Paradise and I thought, I should be at home. I don't know why I'm in the theater watching this. Why am I wearing pants? Exactly. Like, why did I have to pay? I yelled at a person in the parking lot to get in here. Like, why is that happening? And this was a movie where it felt like we should be at home watching this because this is essentially, 
I mean, the magic school bus, there's a plot in here from the magic school bus. I, without spoiling, I'll say that. And I remember sitting down watching and saying, this seems like a lot for that to be what the low-level twist is. It's not the main twist, but for that to be what the twist was and for me to be wearing pants and sitting in a theater and in a lot of ways risking COVID, it just feels like that calculus hasn't exactly been figured out. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think it's minor Disney, though. I think that we could 100% agree on. But streaming versus in theaters, I think they really need to think about that more. Yeah. And it's tricky because it's hard to say with a movie where so much thought has been put into the visuals, right? Like, the bigger the TV you have, the better Yeah, for this experience. Because, I mean, just to explain, you know, they kind of fall through a, a, a surface and like discover this massive kind of world within the world. And all of a sudden you're seeing all these crazy kind of blob-like organisms and plant life that is kind of self-replenishing. And there is a trippy quality to the visuals in this film that I think I really did appreciate that I was seeing them on, on a big screen. But I think like we've been saying with the family dynamics, that wasn't new. Now at the same time, we do need to talk about how this movie kind of handles representation, right? Like yes. you have a 16-year-old boy in this film who has a same-sex crush. And it is yes. kind of providing part of the through line of this story is, as we're meeting these characters. We meet this kid and his crush and how his family is kind of encouraging him and teasing him. And There's a very kind of very matter of fact way that it's dealing with queerness. The central couple of, you know, Searcher and Meridian, they're an interracial couple. And Ethan himself is biracial. It's handling that stuff in pretty matter of fact ways. There's also like a pretty serious environmental metaphor at the heart of this film. Like this film is clearly trying to do some very progressive things in the way that it's presenting this story. But that is colliding with a plot that really could not be more old fashioned. It's in part based on old pulp magazines. Yeah. I think the progressive elements of the movie were done well, and I think they were handled with care. And I think if we're trying to think more about representation in the future and what that looks like, then I think there needs to be room for there to be representation in a movie that isn't so good. Like the movie doesn't have to be great for there still to be representation in it. Because I think for years we've been dealing with movies that had zero representation and weren't that great. Right. Whereas like if we're really getting into the future, we should be getting to a place where there is an interracial couple, there is an environmental supply, and there is a queer teenager with a crush. We should be dealing with all of that in a movie that's not so good. So I remember thinking they did handle those elements with care. You're right. I think matter of fact is the right phrase to use for that because it felt very much like they said, here it is and we're done. Where in the past, they're banning light year in some countries over one kiss. Right. You know what I mean? A one second scene. Exactly. So, something that I didn't even notice happened. You know, <laughs> like, So you have films like this that are kind of Because they're smaller, I don't think we're going to hear a bunch of news stories about this being banned because, again, it's minor Disney. So I feel like there's like a fine line they walk there to say, like, I think representation should be in every movie. They should just be trying to aim for it all the time. But I think we also need to have the understanding that it's okay if these movies aren't necessarily Encanto. You know what I mean? (laughs) If it's not going to be Encanto, it's okay. But I think we still need to, like, grapple with that ourselves and say, does it have to be good? if it's going to be representative. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I think? I think we've been spoiled. I think Pixar has ruined us in a way <laughs> because we used to just be able to go watch an animated film and just enjoy an animated film, right. you know? And now it feels like we're walking in there and because they're laying the seeds of emotion up at the top, we're expecting more from the story, which is kind of like making these animated films become victims of their own success yeah. where it says, well, you've now been able to deliver animated dragons and make me cry. So be ready to do that. The next time I walk into this theater, I don't just want like stunning visuals. I need to cry. And Steven, I didn't cry in this one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, Ronald, I have a dead father. I, I, I have been engineered to cry yeah. at father-son <laughs> dynamics. The Lion King came out one month to the day after my father died. You can imagine Whoa. what kind of theatrical experience that yeah. was for me. And yeah, I, I think you you raise a really interesting point about audience expectations for a movie like this and why a movie can't just be a swashbuckling adventure with great visuals and have that be enough. I will be interested in revisiting this film on streaming. Yeah, I don't think I will do that. I don't, think, I don't know if I'll revisit it on streaming, but I am sitting here thinking, I'm trying to think of the last animated film that didn't have much of a heart that mm. everyone was talking about or, or really enjoying, and I'm drawing a blank. I'm, I'm sure listeners can think of some, but I'm drawing a complete blank on what that actually looks like. And so it makes me think that if you're going to produce these, then maybe that should be a part of the equation to say, is this hitting the mark in terms of emotional resonance mm -hmm. for the audiences that we're trying to, to hit? Because now, you know, when you think about the best animated film category, when you think of the nominees. Like at the Oscars. Yes, correct. At the Oscars, you're not really thinking of just the Pixar film anymore. There's now contenders mm -hmm. that are coming out. I think there was something on uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines. Oh, great movie. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And a movie that, like, was having a lot of fun. That movie had a lot of fun, but really nailed the... The emotional resonance very well. And it makes me wonder now thinking about that movie versus something like Strange World and saying, what was it that we saw it coming? Was it that it felt too forced from the beginning? Because the minute that Jaeger and Searcher have that conversation in the beginning, we kind of were like, okay, well, we know what this movie is about. Right. So then later in the film, when we see Searcher having that same conversation with Ethan, it kind of feels a little too obvious to us. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we obviously see what's happening. It makes us weary. So are we like, are we emotionally numb now? Do they have to do more work? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the one who has to solve this problem, but it is a problem that needs to be addressed uh well i wouldn't say i don't want to like be an alarmist here but it is a problem that i think animators should be thinking of moving forward in their creations yeah well i mean i think that really comes down to the script i mean if you want to compare the mitchells versus the machines to strange world strange world is not going to fare well because it has about one one hundred the jokes Agreed. and that's going to be a problem we definitely are coming down next on this movie. I think people should still check it out on streaming. I agree. You know, I would say that. I'd say when it comes out on streaming, you should do that. I won't, but I think y'all should. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Well, we want to know what you think about Strange World, a movie you almost certainly haven't seen. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Ronald Young Jr., thanks to you for being here. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
And of course, thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima, Chloe Weiner, and Mike Katzif, and edited by Jessica Reedy. Audio engineering was performed by Josephine Neonai, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. I'm Stephen Thompson. We will see you all tomorrow when we'll be talking about The Fablemans. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.